Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. So I like to play billiards or, or pool And a while back, I went to a friend's house who had a pool table, and he said, you want to play? I said, sure. I mean, I I grew up playing pool, and he plays all the time. He thinks he's a big shot. I mean, he's in the room, so I'm going to, I have the microphone. I can say what I want. He can't say anything right now, okay? And so, like, when this happened, I know he thought, like, man, this guy's not going to be any good. He's a pastor. They don't know how to play pool. And so we started playing. I mean, least the, hold on, that's what I thought. I don't know if he really thought that. I can't read minds, right? But that's kind of like the posture. He thought he was just going to destroy me when we played. And so we started playing, and he was surprised that I wasn't terrible. I was a little bit rusty, but I'm actually pretty good, and I beat him sometimes. You see, I grew up. I had a pool table at my house. I mean, my friends used to play. I mean, all sorts of different things. Like, I grew up around this all the time. And here's what we found out is that at nine ball, I whip him way better. I don't think he's won a game. I might be lying. I don't know. But I feel like I always win at nine ball. But eight ball, well, he's a little better than me. Maybe a lot. I don't know. I might be, you know, not exaggerating enough. But, but he usually beats me in eight ball. So which one do you think I want to play? Nine ball. That's all I want to play. Because we like doing the things we're good at, don't we? We like to do the things that make us feel better. And it doesn't matter how humble you are. You don't want to lose. You don't want to feel that. We are drawn to the things that make us feel better. And in the same way that I'm drawn to nine ball because it makes me happy, we are generally drawn to the parts of the Bible that make us feel happy and make us feel good. We're drawn to the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. We're drawn to the fruits of the spirit of love, joy, patience, peace, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're drawn that other people need to do those things, right? Us sometimes. But we're drawn to those verses because they make us feel good. We're drawn to the promises of forgiveness and mercy. We're drawn to these things because of how they make us feel. But there's so many other things in the Bible that are challenging, that are convicting, that we probably don't like as much because it makes us have to rethink everything about our faith and even the church. Today, what we're going to talk about is probably the most uncomfortable thing in the Bible when it comes to practices and functions and things that the church itself needs to carry out. Think about it. Discipleship, we're like, yeah, of course, we have Sunday school. It's a great thing. Get to hang out with people. Love it. We say worship, of course, who doesn't like to come and sing? Fellowship, of course, who doesn't like a good potluck, right? Like, these are easy things. We love these things. But church discipline? It got quiet, right? We're like, yeah, what? What are we talking about? I know stuff like this is in the Bible. And listen, I know we've heard horror stories of people getting this wrong. 
being too aggressive, disciplining the wrong people, not listening to things. I mean, I've heard them, maybe you've heard them. And if that's happened to you or you know someone who's been wounded, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. But we can't, just because we have some bad examples doesn't mean we throw out everything about it. In the same way that if you have a bad dinner, you don't quit eating dinner, right? I mean, you say, okay, well, that wasn't right. We need to adjust from there. And so today I ask that you keep an open mind through the whole, you're gonna be offended, don't worry. Just keep an open mind the whole time and listen to what Paul is saying. Because what we're gonna talk about at first, your first reaction will be, well, this is unloving, this is ungracious, we can't keep those things. I'm like, we, we can't do this kind of thing. But this is one of those times where we have to adjust our understanding of love, our understanding of grace. Because remember, this is the same guy in the same book who in just a few chapters will talk all about love that great love chapter that we read at everybody's wedding. This is the same guy who now is gonna confront sin in a massive way. In a few chapters, he'll talk about love. So these things go together. Dealing with sin and church discipline still is love. Remember last week, he attacked their pride. Today, he continues that conversation with something very specific. This doesn't need any introduction because Paul introduces it for us. Let's jump right in. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, he says this. He says, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that the, even the pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmom. You're like, whoa, I know. So evidently, I mean, in the, the Greek is pretty clear, this man is sleeping with his stepmother. And we aren't told if the father is still alive or not. Some suggest he probably was. But either way, this is appalling. And Paul says, listen, even the pagans, even the Greek and Roman culture would not tolerate this. And the Greek and Roman culture tolerated a whole lot. Here's an ancient quote from them. They said, mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of the body, but wives to bear us legitimate children. I mean, they were pretty open with stuff. I mean, they, they were just kind of, let's go with it. But incest and even adultery in the incest, I mean, these crimes were serious and Roman law showed no leniency to this. In both cases, the man and the woman would have been stripped of their citizenship. They would have forfeited their property and they would have been exiled from the community. You said the government would have did that? Yes, the government would have did that. So understand that what Paul is going to suggest, understand the culture around them and the Greek and Romans would have said, uh-uh, you can't do that here. But Paul isn't just horrified in the sin. Paul is horrified by the church's reaction to it. Here's why, verse two. He says, you were so proud of yourselves but you should be in mourning and in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Now check this out. They are proud of what they allow. 
They have become what we would call progressive and modern, allowing things and supporting things that the culture around them wouldn't even do. And now listen, this is important to understand. This person who he's specifically talking about isn't somebody struggling in sin, tempted by sin, trying to repent from sin, kind of trying to struggle with this addiction. This is a person who is openly living contrary to the teachings, to the biblical teachings. And the church has their flag of pride hanging up outside, telling people how progressive and how forward thinking they are because they accept it and they're proud of what this man is doing. Now, folks, all of us are going to deal with sin. All of us are going to deal with struggles and temptations. All of us are going to fall. But that's not the same as publicly, openly living in sin, completely going against biblical ideas or biblical what the Bible teaches, just saying, hey, I'm going to do it. I'm open. I'm proud. I'm not worried about it. This is a very public thing happening. right? So the idea is they're unashamed, unembarrassedly, and the church is accepting the lifestyle. And Paul says, you should be in what? Mourning. Paul says, you should be in sorrow and shame. Like you shouldn't be happy and proud about what's going on. And so what's his command? Remove the man from your fellowship. Remove him from the church. Now, pay attention. It doesn't say, well, just remove them off the membership list. It says, no, no, no. Remove them from the faith community. Remove them from being around you all. Tell them he's not welcome in that lifestyle. Look at verse three. He says, even though I'm not with you in person, I am with you in the spirit. As though I were there, I have already passed judgment on this man. And in the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Paul says, gather together, publicly denounce and renounce his sin because everybody already knew about it anyways. We're like, Brian, I mean, what's gotten into Paul? Well, remember, Jesus teaches this in Matthew 18. This is very similar. Remember, Jesus says, if someone sins against you, you need to go to that person and if they're unrepentant or y'all can't figure it out, then you bring witnesses, two or three of you go. And if that still doesn't fix it, what are you supposed to do? Take it before the church. We're like, yeah, but I mean, Paul's like, yeah, I know. Jesus is like, yeah, this is how you got to deal with this stuff. It's a pretty big deal. Paul continues. He says in verse five, then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. Now, there's all sorts of translations problems in this. You are more than welcome to Google it. Google it all you want. Nobody knows what this actually means when he says hand him over to Satan because uh, they're, they're, transli- they're, they're helping us out here in this translation, but it literally says hand him over to Satan so his flesh will be destroyed. And they're like, what does that mean? It was like, I don't know. Like, no idea what Paul means to this. But evidently, does it sound good? No. Hopefully, it's his sinful nature, something going on there. That's how they put it out, uh, put it to us. But it's clearly not a good thing for this man to be 
put out of the church. And what is very clear is Paul says to throw him out. Like there's no translation problem there. Remove the man. And whatever's going on, I mean, we have so many questions we don't have the answer to. What we do see is that Paul sees the church, the local church, as a place of divine protection. He sees the local church as a community who rallies behind and the Spirit's with us. And together, remember, it says the Holy Spirit's among you. He lives in us. Like the church is this important, special thing, this place of refuge, this place that people can come together for protection and love and, and just amazing thing. And he says, so you got to put him out of there. If he's going to live like that, you need to put him in, in, in Satan's domain. That's not in the church. And so whatever else it is, we see Paul being concerned about his salvation. And the whole point of this is hopefully the man will repent. So there's two things I want to say about this. First, we have to understand anytime church discipline's carried out or someone's removed, the point of it is reconciliation. What that means is the point is to get that person to repent. You want to be able to welcome them back in. But if the sin is serious enough, if it's public enough, the church needs to step in and do something about it. The point is how, in light of how serious this is, the church shouldn't be proud of it. The church should condemn it. We'll get to why in a little bit. But secondly, notice how important church fellowship is and church membership is. Notice how big of a deal it felt when we said, I mean, it sounds like a big deal to throw someone out of church, right? Does that feel kind of heavy to you guys? Are y'all like, no, we do it all the time. We did it last week. No. Hey, did you know in this church, as a side note, do you know that in the books they said they kicked someone out of the church for going to the beach on a Sunday? Did y'all know that? Yeah, I got head shaking. Yeah, like, I mean, this church used to practice, go to the beach on a Sunday, you're out. I don't know what they say about football games. We'll talk about that in a different day, won't we? Yeah, I got uncomfortable, right? That'd be real crazy. That was way back in the day. It was only like five years ago that happened. Okay. <laughs> but the serious of that feels so uncomfortable of someone being removed. But check it out. People self-remove themselves all the time. They don't come. They don't worship. They don't get involved. They don't get plugged in. And so while we think it's such a big deal to remove someone Today, people remove all the time. But the church is supposed to be this place of divine protection, this place of the worshiping community. Like not being a part of it is such a big radical deal that we are appalled if someone were to be removed. Yet people self-remove all the time, folks. And that's where we need to step in and start calling them, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But perhaps... Perhaps the reason why we don't take church discipline so serious is because we're not taking membership serious. Membership is more than just a name on a roll. And because that word member is used in our culture for so many different ways, a better way to understand what biblical membership is, it would be this idea of partnership. This idea that if you're a member, you're a partner. We are partnering together to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ. We are the hands and feet of him and the body of Christ. And so what Paul says when he says we are the body of Christ and each one of us is a member, he's talking about each one of us as an organ, we're the fingers, we're the hands, we're the feet, like that type of member. That makes sense? Members that way? I know we use it in that legal term, but that's not how they use it in the Bible. 
And so to be a member is to be an important role in the healthy function of a church. That's the word picture there. And so throwing someone out is a big deal. Self-removal is a big deal. Look what he says in verse six. And he says, your boasting about this is what? Terrible. They are proud of the sin. You're like, Brian, churches wouldn't do, you know, I mean, it's his home in today's world, doesn't it? We're proud that we allow it. We're proud that we're going against. We're more gracious than Paul. Paul's like, no, no, this is terrible. And he spends in this section more time dealing with the church and their attitude towards sin and being proud about it than he does with the actual sin itself. And here's what we know already, we can see all around, is that progressive churches who are openly and accepting of sinful lifestyle, they don't help anyone. Being accepting and promoting that does not help people who are struggling and are trying to figure that out. Affirming people's sin does not help them become the person that Jesus Christ has called them to be. But being a church that just condemns people for sin, that's not helpful either. Because then you just sit in shame and guilt and you feel like, well, nobody can help me and Jesus can't save me because nobody else deals with this. The idea is what a church must display is this idea of grace and truth. We've talked about this before. Jesus was full of grace, John tells us, and full of truth. So we want to teach biblical truths. We want to explain sin is sin. We got to deal with that sin. But we also want to be gracious and help people work through it with the point of redemption, reconciliation, and helping people know Christ in a deeper way. But the goal is always restoration. The goal is always redemption. The goal is always to help our brothers and sisters out of the mess. Because you ever been in a mess before? Yeah. But the goal of that is to help and bring it together. But pretending that they're not sinning is not helping anyone. It's not helping them, their family, or their relationship with Christ. And this is messy. It's uncomfortable. But that's where we need to work. That's the point of the church, to get in the middle of all that stuff. The idea we've talked about before is you can come as you are, but you can't stay there, right? We wanna to continue to mature and become more like Jesus Christ. The perfect example is, you remember that woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter eight? I mean, how, she was caught in the act. That's pretty embarrassing, right? And she was brought before. What happened to the guy? No idea, no idea. But she was brought before everyone. Remember they wanted a stone or brought her before Jesus? Remember what he said? You without sin, what? Cast the first stone. We're like, yes, yeah, Jesus was gracious, loving, but what else did he say? Go and sin no more. The truth and grace. That's what it looks like. They're not opposed to each other. Jesus was full of grace and truth but they were proud, they were progressive. Verse six, he says this, the second part. He says, don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the dough, the whole batch, excuse me, that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. And so, if you didn't know, I'm not a baker, okay? 
I was like, I have no idea what he's talking about here. I gotta look it up. So I looked it up. Here's what's going on. So evidently, yeast is added to bread to make it rise. You're like, Brian, you didn't know that? Nope. I mean, I heard about it before, but like, I've never made bread. I don't want to tell you. I've just never done that. Okay. And leaven is a piece of leftover dough that already has yeast in it, and they would save that, and they would add it to the new dough so they didn't have to go through that whole process again, right? Y'all like, I'm, Brent, Brent is like, yes, thank you. I got it right. Okay. It took me a while to figure that out. And so you had it, but back then, they didn't have the storage options we have today. So that little piece of leavened bread would get moldy, bacterial, fermented, because they would just keep it, right? There was no fridge. There wasn't things like that. And so the idea is once a year, they would get rid of that. They would start all over to stop all that bacteria and that growth and stuff like that. And that's what Paul is saying here. In the same way that that leaven and that bacteria and stuff can spread through the whole dough and ruin it, sin left unchecked and this idea of being progressive and proud of it can just infect the whole community. See, our attitude of sin, thinking we can tame it and we can control it, we are naive. Sin can affect us all, Paul is saying. He said, you can't have that running rampant like that. And so by removing the person, Paul is protecting the church. He's protecting everybody else. And second, by removing the person, you're letting them know the seriousness of the sin with the goal of bringing about repentance and reconciliation. So removing is the most kind and loving thing you can do to help them and to protect and help the church. It takes sin serious, and we can never forget that our Savior took sin pretty serious. While he offers forgiveness and grace, what did he do for our sin? He hung on a bloody cross and was beaten and died for it. So it's this idea of grace and truth we have to keep in our minds. He says in verse seven, then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. That's so important. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says, Jesus has already been sacrificed for us. He was our lamb. He made us clean. We have been purified. We don't have to dwell in and live in sin any longer. And so Paul is calling them and he's calling us. He's saying, live into who you already are. You've been set free. You've been redeemed. You were children of God. You don't have to live in that old way of life. You've been set free. So live into who you already are. You already are clean. The church has already been purified. Their sins have already been forgiven. They're already holy. They're already, like all of this is true, but they're choosing to live in this life. Paul's like, no. Live into who you already are and what Christ has already done for you. You see, in Christ, in Christ, we are sanctified and saved. We don't have to live in sin. Are we going to struggle with it? I hope not, man. It's driving me crazy. But I think we are. The rest of our lives, we're going to deal with it. We're never going to be free from it. Oh, the day we are is the day I will be so thankful because we'll be standing in front of our Lord and Savior that day. But there's a difference between struggling with it and then boasting in it and being proud of it. 
He's calling them to live as Christians. It's who they're claiming to be. This is what you already are, so live into what you're claiming to be. Verse 10, I meant verse nine. He says, when I wrote you before, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or are greedy or cheap people who worship idols. You would have to leave the world to avoid such people like that. So we aren't called to be separatist. We don't have to avoid people who are unbelievers and living in sin. And evidently they misunderstood what Paul said in his previous letter. We don't have that one. We don't know what that said. But evidently they misunderstood. But it seems to me what's going on to try to recreate these. It seems to me that evidently they said, all right, well, Paul wrote us this letter and said, we can't talk to anybody who sins. Like we can't hang out with anybody who sins. So the heck with what Paul says because this church isn't afraid of people living in sin. They got a guy in their church who's an incest, right? And they're proud about it, so they're not scared of that. Evidently, they thought Paul went too far. They thought his teachings were too difficult. And folks, we still have that same idea prevalent in churches today. Well, Paul's too hard. It's too difficult. We want to ignore that. We don't want to deal with that. But Paul said, no, 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 no. He clarifies. He says, I meant, look at verse 11. I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a what? There's a difference. A believer yet indulges in sexual sin. And that's when people start saying, that's right. Get them. Because we like to pick on sexual sin as if there's no other sin out there, right? We're like, get those people. But he's not done. Look at what else he says. Who claims to be in sexual sin or is what? Uh Uh-oh. This is getting longer. Or worship idols, like college football. Or is abusive. Or is a drunkard. Or cheats people. You're like, wait. Yeah, he lumps all of that in with sexual sin. So sexual sin isn't like this one thing we pick on. He's saying it's all of these things that are outward evidence that you're not living like a Christian. All of these things that are abusing people, that are hurting people, like that are causing just massive damage if someone's in a lifestyle like that? No, you don't even eat with them. You don't hang out with them. You don't act like what they're doing is okay. The idea is simple. He's saying anybody, it's not that if you're struggling, if you're tempted, it's not if you have some massive sin things you got going on in here and you're working through it, praying about it, trying to figure that out. No, 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 no. This isn't someone who's struggling. This is someone who's openly, flagrantly doing whatever they want, hurting other people in the process. He says, no, you don't even want to hang out with them and pretend it's okay. He says, if you're a Christian, live like it and help other people do the same. If someone is publicly living a life of greed or abuse of cheating, we need to deal with it because it's not just internal issues. Think about the list. All of these, like if you're, think about it, if you're greedy, how would anybody know you're greedy unless you were doing it? How would anybody know if you were abusive if you weren't abusing people? Like Paul's not saying, hey, if you struggle with abuse in your heart, no, no, no. These are people who are being abusive. These are people who are cheating people and being greedy. Like their behavior is showing what's going on. Paul said, no, no, no. If they're believers, no. We got to deal with it. Verse 12. 
He says, it isn't, this is a big one, pay attention. He said, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. But as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. And church, we have this so backwards today. Christians are so concerned with condemning the outside world. People who aren't Christians, we yell and we fuss about it. But Paul doesn't say influence politics. He doesn't say condemn those heathens and their practices. He says, it's not my responsibility to be judgmental for people who aren't Christians and how they act. He says they can do whatever they want. But it is our responsibility as Christians to deal with Christians. He's saying, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, live like a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, help your brother and sister live as a believer of Jesus Christ. It's your responsibility, Paul says, to judge those in the church in open sin. And this is when we gasp. We're like, Paul, I don't, I don't want to do that kind of thing. Paul, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be a part of something like that. Listen, none of us want to be a part of something like that. If everybody would just quit sinning, we'd be fine, wouldn't we? It's not about wanting to do it, but it's understanding that how it hurts and affects people. And understanding we do this for the benefit of people. And these are the things that the church are supposed to be doing. And I don't know how this works in every instance. It's messy, it's complicated. But I've heard of a beautiful modern example of how this worked. For instance, a husband left his wife and the church leaders went to this husband and went and talked to him. The guy was unrepented, said he was done, wasn't interested in going back. And so they brought it before the church. They brought it before the church that he left his wife. He was out there doing this thing and the church condemned it and they removed him from membership to call him to repentance. And now I know we're sitting there stuck like, man, I can't believe a church did that. But folks, I need you to think this is real life. Think about this. The woman who felt alone and isolated had an entire church surround her with their love and support. She had an entire church praying for her, to be there for her, to help her. She had a whole church supporting her, calling out this man's sin. She wasn't alone. And he was told by the church that he was removed and condemned. Hundreds of people said, no, what you're doing is not okay. In fact, he had them calling him, blowing up his phone saying, what are you doing? You need to get, this isn't okay what you're doing. We don't support this. They were praying for him. They were asking the Lord to intervene in the situation. The whole point was the church gathered together to try to help reconcile this couple. They didn't get together to, to get involved because they were nosy, but to rally around their brother and sister in Christ who needed their support and help. You see, especially back then, folks, think about it, especially 2,000 years ago, this protected the vulnerable. This protected those that were hurt by other sin and had nowhere else to go. Rather than this woman just being thrown out of her house and having nobody help her, and nobody there for her, and nobody stand up for her. The church for years is saying, no, we're not tolerating that. 
the church would rally behind her and said, what you're doing is not okay. Rather than greedy employers who claim to be Christians ripping off their brothers, sisters in Christ, the church would rally behind it and say, well, look, we know this, this person has nothing, but we can step in and say, what you're doing is not okay. Think about how it protects. Guys, we act like sin. We want to save the sinners, and we do. Jesus does that. But never forget, sin hurts human beings. It destroys families. And this is where the church steps in and tries to get involved to reconciliation and help. Like it steps in to protect the vulnerable. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing for people to have help and support? And so what happened to the marriage, you might ask? I honestly do not remember. What I remember is the picture and the beauty of the local church supporting the vulnerable and those who've been hurt and rallying around them. Rather than people who get so embarrassed by their situation, they just drop out of church altogether because I see that far too often where people have personal problems and they run from the church because they're afraid of what everybody thinks. Where the church should be the place they run to because we pray and we support and we help. That's what the local church should be. And this is what worked for the Corinth church too. You wanna see something cool? Nobody's exactly sure what happened to this guy. Of course, Paul doesn't name him, so we don't have records to check. But what we see in 2 Corinthians is this. Look at this. It's a glimpse into the book. We'll go in 2030 when we get to it. It says this. He says, I'm not overstating it when I say that the man who causes all the trouble, excuse me, that caused all the trouble hurt all of you more than he hurt me. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by the discouragement. So this is in another letter from Paul to the church. And nobody knows if it's the same guy because Paul doesn't name drop, but I think it is, and so do other scholars. The person who got kicked out of the church in 1 Corinthians 5, this could be Paul calling them to repent, saying, no, 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 now forgive them. It, it did what it was supposed to do. Now bring them back in. And regardless if it's the same man or not, what we know is somebody else got kicked out. And Paul's saying, no, no, punishment's enough. Bring them in. They're trying to hold grudges, trying to keep them back out. And Paul's like, no, 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 bring them back in. Like it, it did its job. They're repentant. Bring them back in. But if we're accepting of sin and promotion of sinful lifestyles, People will miss out on the forgiveness and the love of Jesus and they'll miss out on the beauty of the local church helping them. And so this whole section's a call for us to be who we were created to be in Christ Jesus. And this isn't an easy thing to do, but thankfully we don't do it alone through the Holy Spirit, through God's people rallying together. And Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, he is with us in these moments. But what I want to remind us, because right, like this is a church thing and I don't have any names to bring to you today. Aren't you thankful for that? Like I'd have been real uncomfortable with it. Like there's no names. But what we need to think about here is that each and every one of us needs to live a lifestyle of reconciliation with others. It's not a fun thing to do. It's not easy to admit when you're wrong. It's not easy to fully listen to someone else's opinion when it's different from yours. But in order for us to be the people that God's created us to be, if we, we have to actively be practicing Matthew 18 and, and dealing with those difficult things, seeking reconciliation. 
And nobody likes it. I don't like it. You don't, nobody likes to have to work through that. But it's a whole lot better than carrying around resentment and anger. Because when that stuff starts to fester, it comes out on all sorts of anger and just creates a world of trouble for you. I promise, I know. But what, wouldn't you rather reconcile and deal with it than allow that stuff to affect all the other things in your life? And so all I ask you to do is as we think through this week and what I ask you to think through on your own is who do you, who do you need to reconcile with? And how do you deal with vulnerability and being honest and open? How about this? When was the last time you admitted you were wrong? Be honest. When was the last time you were like, yeah, I'm, I'm wrong? When was the last time you said sorry first? You're like, I don't know. I've never had to do anything. Brian, I'm perfect. Like, I just got it together. That's how I feel sometimes. My wife tells me I'm wrong all the time. Oh, she's in here. I got to be careful today. Oops. But listen, here's the point. If we are actively doing this, if we are actively reconciling with people, if we're actively saying we're sorry, if we're actively listening to people, if we're actively doing that in our lives, if there ever came a time and a point where the church needed to deal with it, we'd be like, yeah, we get it. Like we get the point because we're practicing it. But if we're not practicing on our own, it will sound so foreign if we ever had to deal with it collectively. We have to be the people who have repentance. We have to be the people of reconciliation. We have to be the people who are willing to say, I'm sorry and I forgive you and I was wrong or you're wrong and we need to deal with this. That's not fun. But that's what it means to mature in Christ, doesn't it? So in order to do that though, well, we got to take our membership serious. And so what I ask you to do, as I alluded to earlier, is those people who, who you know are members of our church or partners in, in, in our church and who aren't here, I want you to give them a call. I want you to tell them you miss them. I want you to tell them they need to be here because you love them. And saying, if you don't come, I'm going to have to remove you from membership. That's where we're going. I'm just kidding. Don't say that to them, okay? Don't say that. All right? Like, you better listen to sermons where we're going. No, 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 but tell them you miss them. Tell them you love them. Because, folks, that's not the pastor's job. That's the church's job. That's all of our job. And you're like, well, Brian, who do I call that person that's on your mind? That person that God puts on your heart? You're like, yeah, but I don't want to talk to him. I know. Call him anyways. Let God work through that. So just think about that. Pray with that. And will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we come to you today and just deal with a difficult passage Lord, dealing with, with sin isn't an easy thing. And Lord, we pray that we never as a church have to carry out a form of church discipline like that. But Father, also help us be the type of people who are reconciling, uh, reconciling with others, fixing broken relationships, quick to forgive, quick to say, I'm sorry. Let us be the people individually and, and all throughout our lives that display grace and truth. Try to figure out what that looks like in our lives. Father, we're so thankful for the church and what the church, how you brought us together and what it's supposed to be, a place where people can struggle and deal with their sin, a place of loving forgiveness and kindness, a place that carries each other's burdens, and a place that will be there to protect and help the vulnerable and those hurt. We thank you so much for that, Father. Help us just continue to live out being your body, your bride. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen.